On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we revisit some past episodes where some of our guests gave us some amazing information on what we should expect in the future. And with this, this is the last episode that we're going to have before we make our big announcement of what's going to happen with the show. All right, stay tuned, everyone, for next week when we make that announcement. But for right now, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Would you say that because of the cut in NASA or the budget in for NASA, maybe some improvements have slowed down in Silicon Valley? That's a good question. The key thing is, What are you trying to achieve? You were really addressing that in your first question, like with humanitarian efforts, what are you trying to achieve? It's been one of my passions the last 10 years is to ask, now that we've made all this progress in poverty reduction, the third big thing that we did in our humanitarian work was turn around the AIDS epidemic. Those of you who were around in the 80s and the early 90s, it was so hopeless. No one knew what we could do, if we could do anything. And yet we got that turned around. We got the funding for AIDS treatment. And now AIDS is on its way out. This will be the last generation with the transmission of AIDS. The question I asked is, how would we measure success in this humanitarian work? Or what does it mean to eliminate poverty, extreme poverty? Because it it really, you, you want to look at the work that we're doing on the climate. So by 2010, a bunch of the people from the poverty group results spun off Citizens Climate Lobby, which is another lobbying group for climate work. I was advising them. I asked them, what is your goal? Same question you asked. What and by when? And they said, um, I don't know. We, we want to put a price on carbon so we can smartly reduce our carbon footprint. I said, well, that's nice. That's a means to an end. What's the end? And they said, well, that the executive director said, well, Peter, that's your job now. Figure out what is the goal? Because you know, he knew I had a little bit of background at this point in my career. And I went to the top scientist, to Jim Hansen, who's the, really the father of climate science. He was on our board. And so I had lunch with him. And he said, I don't know what the goal is. I said, well, there has to be something. He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, how about by the end of the century, what could we achieve? He said, well, you know, maybe we could get back to 350 parts per million. And I'll explain what that means later. But you know, it's a goal. And I said, but Dr. Hansen, that would be really the end of humanity. We probably can't survive that. That's why you picked that level of 350. He says, yeah, but if we do achieve it, then we could really go on from there and maybe do something better. I thought, that's a losing proposition. And it was at that point that I decided, actually, at that point, I gave up. (laughs) And then I went back home. My daughter came back from college. And I realized I couldn't give up because I could see which way the ship was going the ship of state, and it was not going in a good direction. So I decided, okay, I'll figure out what is the goal. Interestingly, it turned out the light came on for me when I had dinner at one of the climate conferences with a bishop. The bishop convinced me, it took two glasses of wine, and I'm a lightweight. He convinced me that climate is a humanitarian issue. It's a moral issue. It's not a science issue. You know, I'm a scientist. I have 27 patents. And then I realized science doesn't care. You know, it's actually really interesting to watch the planet disintegrate for science. You get so many papers about it. People say, well, we want to save nature. You know, nature is probably going to be happier and more diverse after we leave this planet. 
you know, the extinction rate will go way down and new species will come up like crazy. And so then you say, well, then why are we working on the climate? And the answer is, well, because we're human. Our DNA is designed to survive from generation to generation. Our behaviors are designed to take care of future generations. In a sense, that's our only reason to be here is to take care of future generations. There you go. That's the reason we want to work on the climate. And then you say, well, then the goal is very easy because we know if the planet is too hot, we won't survive. If it's too cold, we won't survive. So we want that Goldilocks point in the middle. And that is what we call getting the CO2 level below 300 parts per million. By setting a goal of 300 parts per million, which is a level that humans have lived through in the past. It's the highest level that the human species has ever lived through. So 300 parts per million by the year 2050. And we pretty much picked that because it sounds good. <laughs> and <laughs> and you know, if we wait much longer than that, then my generation says, oh, you know what? Let's let the next generation work on it. I'll do the research. I'll write the scientific papers. And that's not good enough. Turned out that was a good decision on our part because the climate is falling apart much faster than people had expected. And so the bottom line there is pick a goal that's meaningful. One of the keys is to realize who is your customer. And this is true, I think, and be applicable for the audience here, that to succeed in a business, you got to know your customer. And in the climate area, people hadn't asked, who are we doing it for? They thought, well, we're doing it for God, we're doing it for nature, we're doing it for science, and none of those really care. It's just for our grandchildren. Those are the ones who care. Once you know who your customer is and what, then you figure out what they want, the goal becomes clear. Your audience may or may not know this, but we actually can get all the carbon back out of the atmosphere to get back to the safe level. It's just no one had set a what by when goal before this. Are there current methods or ways that could solve this problem? So can you talk about the implementation in the transportation space and how efficiency is affected with data? The big thing with that is vehicle health. It's uptime. It's being able to go ahead and take that data and basically ensuring that your vehicle gets from A to B. And you want to make sure that one, you've got the, the vehicles operational. You want to make sure that those technicians are being able to go ahead and maintain those vehicles and then be able to make sure that there are parts along the way. Uh, one of the big problems they have is you don't want to have a vehicle sidelined for the fact that they don't have the parts that are in the right place. And so when you're able to go ahead and track the data where you see common occurrences, where you have common issues with different components within the truck, they need to have those parts on hand rather than go ahead and wait on those parts to get to the location, to have the right driver, to have the right technician to be able to modify that. So it really helps to go ahead and improve the efficiency. And again, helps maintain those service level agreements that those customers have because the freight right now is, you know, there's a lot of freight that's out there. It needs to go ahead and get moved. And so that uh, the companies are paying a premium to, to get that. So then can data also benefit the transportation supply chain? Very much so. So when you look at from the, the overall supply chain, from a parts perspective, so you have these large part distributors, they want to know what parts they need to have. They have their own anecdotal. They understand some seasonal information. But when they see what's happening within those vehicles, they can also know whether or not they, they didn't necessarily tweak the right setting on the vehicle. So they're able to go ahead and help with fine-tuning the settings to make sure that they're going ahead and getting optimal performance. Uh, we've had a great bit, uh, year in 2018 from uh, Class 8 orders. A lot of the larger OEs, they're fighting for business, they're fighting for space. So as they're able to go ahead and show that their vehicles are up longer, that they're the ones that are less less likely to go ahead and break down. They're more reliable. 
so that they're really the ones that they can push their brand. So then this technology that Nordigan has developed, are companies adopting it pretty quickly then? Or is there kind of some pushback? We've definitely gone ahead and seen a very rapid adoption. One of the great things about us is that we're all makes all models. We're agnostic within that. A lot of the solutions that are out there are really key to the individual components. And we all know that you know, the body, it's a holistic system. And so that if you've got one problem or one of your units seems to go ahead and be showing a little bit of a problem, it may be a symptom of a larger issue that's out there. So when you use a tool like ours, you're able to go ahead and look at the system holistically. And it really goes ahead, again, increases the driver's ability to go ahead and drive. It allows that vehicle to be up. It'll go ahead and get repairs that may or may not be lighting up on the dashboard that are about ready to go, but they're able to go proactively address those issues when they come in for routine maintenance as opposed to waiting until the vehicle's on the side of the road. It really, we've seen a tremendous amount of savings of money because when the vehicle's on the side of the road, you have to go ahead and pay for a tow. You have to figure out where to be able to tow that vehicle to. You have to figure out if you have the right parts. Whereas if it's addressed before anything moves out of the shop bay, then ultimately you're able to keep that truck up longer, which is paramount. So then your technology is really for these companies to prevent problems in the future, to address things before they happen. Is that right? So we do both. So, I mean, obviously when the vehicle is in the shop, it's already got a check engine light comes on. You, you can use one of our technologies to be able to look at and say, diagnose and repair that vehicle. So you can see, hey, this is what the, you know, you've got a red light on the dash. This is what that fault is. This is what the problem is. And oh, by the way, there's another tool we hear that we call inactive faults that's not showing up all the time. But you're able to identify that it's going to be a potential concern and you can go ahead and address that issue. Another solution we have is really where you're kind of pushing where technology is going. You know, when you're in the shop, that is something that is you're there, you're off road, you're not moving. And obviously that you don't have, you're not making money at that point in time. Our other solution is more of an over the air solution. So we're in real time. We can monitor that health and safety of those vehicles. And you look at the solutions you want to go ahead and be able to address that truck while it's sick, you know, before it's dead, so to speak, you don't want it on the side of the road. You want to be able to address it in real time. So you want to proactively and preventatively be able to schedule that maybe somewhere along its route. If it's going north to south, then you want to be able to go as it starts to continue to go further south. You want to be able to say, hey, pull off on XYZ location. Here's the truck stop. They've got the part. They're ready to go and be able to address your issue. So in general is moving that direction. We're following a lot with what the commercial spaces do or the kind of the more personally owned vehicles is going and we're doing that to more on the commercial space as well. Really trying to prevent or get to that purely prognostic and preventive area. Do you think in the future that a situation might arise where say you get in a, a minor car accident, but then the sensors will tell you where you can get that part repaired within your daily calendar when the most optimal time would be? How do you see all these pieces playing together. Technology go ahead and evolve, whether it be within 5G, whether it be other aspects of it, you're trying to go ahead and push diagnostics to the edge. So you want to understand what's going on within that vehicle. So in real time, you could figure out, hey, I'm driving down the road. I know I have this issue. And then automatically, as continue to see more machine learning and more algorithms get involved, they'll be able to go ahead and ultimately do some routine scheduling within some of those larger fleets, because obviously or within a, one of your contract maintainers, they'll make sure that they have a bay available and make sure they have the right certified technician available. They'll have the right parts available or get everything in route. So it really gets more of a, a just-in-time system as opposed to having large warehouses of stocks and 
and huge bays, it'll be much smaller setups along the road. No one wants to go ahead and maintain long terms of inventory. You want to be able to try and turn it as fast as possible. And where that's going to go in the scenario you put, okay, great. I had a car accident. And you know, you're going to know as they're doing self-diagnostic of what the problems were, what needs to go ahead and be fixed. Now, is this technology only for trucks or mining equipment, public transportation, military? What are all the uses for it? And does it have to be really altered? So it, it does not have to be altered for multiple types of vehicle. It, again, it's an all-makes-all-model solution. A lot of the systems that are out there that you name, some of our largest customers are busing companies. We work within the military as it is right now. I mean, military, the tactical wheeled vehicles in the military, all they are is commercial vehicle parts that are put in there. And so you've got that solution. And then you got the mining trucks that are out there at work off-road, some of those larger ones. And again, we're located in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, right next to a large OE that we work very tightly with, uh, with Volvo and Mac. And so we do some software development for them. And so a lot of the off-road equipment, we, we work within those. It, uh, again, it does not need to go ahead and be customized. What about last mile transportation? What do you see with that technology? So, I mean, the scooters, whether it be scooters or autonomous, our, our limiting factor right now is what the protocol that you go ahead and communicate on. Within the heavy-duty vehicles, it's 1730, or excuse me, 1639 or 1708. That is our sweet spot. But as the last mile continues to change, as you mentioned, there are people on scooters and we see a lot of autonomous space going that way. And we definitely see the requirement to have our technology on that because then you can be able to monitor these types of systems in real time. You're going to want to know or the public's going to want to know, hey, when that vehicle is going to go haywire, when that vehicle in front of you or to left or right of you or the one that's barreling down at your house is going to have some sort of fault on it. So being able to have some sense of comfort that it's being monitored, that it's going ahead and said, hey, they're not going to put an autonomous vehicle out on the road that's got a problem, you know, from a fleet standpoint or from a larger delivery standpoint. So having that capability, we see that definitely being more and more prevalent and more required because as we continue to move into the autonomous space, the hours of restrictions or the hours of service that current drivers have, those go away. And so then those trucks are going to be used a lot more. And the more that you use that vehicle, the more opportunity is for it to break down. So it's going to have more and more miles on it. So you're going to need to do a better job of repairing it and really going ahead and monitoring what the issues are. So right now in that area, that geographic area you'd mentioned, if food, water, shelter became an issue, is there the technology right now to replenish it so that people don't have to migrate? Yeah, exactly right. The food, water, and energy problem is really the issue. And what I've decided to do, and the reason I'm leaving NASA, is to focus on how we can optimize this technology around food, water, and energy. And it can be in Asia. It can be anywhere in the world. The system that we've designed, which we're calling upcycle systems, involves taking advantage of the waste from animals. If we look now at the earth, it's 29% land and 71% water. But if we only look at the land, then it's about 71% of our land on the earth is usable. 19 20% of it's barren and about 10% of it's frozen. Of the 71% of usable land, 50% of it is already in agriculture. About 37% is left in forests. About 11% is scrub, 1% is covered by fresh water, and about 1% to 3% is covered by cities. 
Now, what's interesting is that if you look at the agricultural land, about 77% of our agricultural land, three quarters of it, is dedicated to growing livestock. Now, some of this land can't be used for any other thing than livestock, but only 23% of our agricultural land is used for growing crops. Now, of the 77% that's used for livestock, the livestock are only providing about a third of our protein and about a fifth of our calories. So why is this interesting? It's interesting because the livestock are on these huge grasslands. In the United States, about 41% of all the land is used for grazing cattle. And there are huge areas that are now used for having concentrations of animals, dairies or feedlots. People don't realize this, but there are now 19 billion chickens in the world with a life expectancy of 45 to 60 days. It's a huge number of animals. There are an additional 6 billion cows and pigs and goats and sheep. So we're looking at massive numbers of animals. And what we're not taking into account is the huge amount of waste that they're producing. So we're feeding them 40% of our grain. We're using about 80% of our water to grow the agricultural crops that are supporting them as well as us. And they use about a third of our energy. So what can we use from these animals that will help us to improve the security of water, food, and energy? And the answer is that we use their manure. We use their waste. Now, you need to understand that in order to make food, we're growing these animals and we're feeding them. It takes about 8 to 10, even 20 kilograms of feed to make one kilogram of beef. It takes about four kilos of feed to make a kilo of pork, but it only takes about two kilos of feed to make a kilo of chicken. Now, we also eat fish and shrimps and other aquatic animals, and they're much better. If you look at tiger prawns, it takes less than two kilos of feed to make a kilo of tiger prawns, and it takes 1.4 kilos of feed to make a kilo of Atlantic salmon. So, what we're proposing is to combine aquaculture and livestock. Let's hear about the startup right now. You've got me curious. Okay, great. So what we've envisioned is building a circular system. And how does this work? Well, we take the manure from animals, which we well know can be made into fertilizer. But in addition to using it for making fertilizer, we put it into what's called an anaerobic digester. This has been known for a really long time. Because anaerobic digesters, if you put manure in them or other organic materials, they can be used to make biogas, which is methane. And methane can be burned to make electricity and heat. But that anaerobic digester and burning of biogas makes a greenhouse gas called carbon dioxide. Now, we can use the carbon dioxide and the fertilizer that's made from the anaerobic digester and fertilizer, we can use that to grow the fastest growing plant on the planet, which is microalgae. Now, microalgae are interesting for a number of reasons. A, they're really fast growing. B, they're the most efficient plant in the world. And C, they make a substance called omega-3. It's a fatty acid that we need to eat in our diets. So what do we do with the algae? We feed that back to our animals. If you feed algae to cows, they put omega-3 in their milk. If you feed it to chickens, they put omega-3 in their eggs. If you feed it to pigs, they change the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, making the meat of pigs more wholesome for us to eat. 
We can also use the algae to make feed and oxygen to support aquaculture. And the waste products from the aquaculture go back to feed algae. So we've seen I've made a loop. People have known for a long time that you can make manure into fertilizer and you can use manure to make biogas and that you can get the biogas to grow, biogas and the CO2 to grow algae with fertilizer from the manure. We've known this for a long time. But what Upcycle System is going to do is it's going to use what we call augmented intelligence to understand and maintain the complexity of this system. Augmented intelligence is going to include sensors on all the different components of the system, and that will allow us to do data mining and machine learning and decision intelligence. We're going to be able to put together a business intelligence along with these artificial intelligence to build a system that we think we can master, even though it's so complex. So can you talk about the revenue model of your company? Absolutely. Let me, let me try to clarify this again. So we're going to look at the waste products from animals. And rather than going into a fertilizer-only pathway, we're going to go into an energy pathway. And what Upcycle is going to be doing is helping to design the system. And then we oversee the system using the sensors and the augmented intelligence that includes artificial intelligence and data mining. So in our business model, what we're doing is we have an eight-step process with four phases. And in that eight steps, we separate out identifying sites, identifying people. We look at the environment. We look at the engineering. We look at the social aspects. And we help to create. It's a bit like the model of industrial symbiosis. And we're calling it upcycle systems or UCS symbiosis. And in, within this, we're building these teams of people that are going to work together or for one part of the system are going to be resources for another part of the system. And we, as a company, are going to oversee this process using augmented intelligence and provide information to each of the members of our symbiosis. And this technology that you're talking about, how much of it is in development right now? How much of it has existed before? And also, I have to ask, decision intelligence. Can you talk more about that? Oh, great. Okay. So first of all, the good news is, is that all the different parts of this technology are already known. So we know how we can take manure and turn it into biogas and fertilizer. People have been doing this for a long time. We know that we can take the, the residual material in the anaerobic digester from making the biogas and use it as a fertilizer. We know that we can take CO2 and grow algae with fertilizer. So. Long story short, we know how to do all the parts of this. We include within the system the food component coming out of our livestock and the aquaculture, and that will be within our business model. And we include the algae component, which is a feed component of our system. And you know that number one cost in aquaculture and in agriculture for animals is often the feed. And we'll be able to supplement the feed in a way that will save money. And we have a water component in our system also, where we're purifying the water in the system. So you asked about decision intelligence. Decision intelligence is where we take the expertise of local people who've been experienced in these different fields that we're bringing together. 
and use their archived information to help people just starting out in the field. So we don't just use sensors and data collection and data mining. We also use data from people who are experienced in these areas, and that we call decision intelligence. Shamil, right now, huge corporations are spending billions and billions on autonomous car, the technology. Why not use the LiDAR and all these systems that they're building instead of using 5G? What are the advantages and disadvantages? So the way I think about it is we need to use something that is a combination between the two. There is space for headless cars and there is space for AI in the car. Challenges that we are facing with AI in the car is, let me tell you a story. Let's say you drive slow, 15, 20 miles an hour. You turn, you do a right turn into a street. Uh, you see a ball, a red ball, and a boy picking between two cars. He's about to jump into the road. You immediately hit the brakes and veer to the left, and you hit a bicycle. Now, if you're me, you're probably at that point, stop sleeping for a long time. Kind of like you see your life running in front of you and your heart is in your throat and you, whatever it is that you feel emotionally. If you're an AI, you probably reboot because you feel very shame. So what do you do when you're an AI in the car? If you're a 5G in the cloud and you can see around the corner way before this car will show up, you can slow it down and manage it. There are what we call, you know, again, interesting on corner issues and corner cases associated with AI that we do not know how to solve or have hard time to solve today. And with 5G, we'll be able to solve either with an AI in the cloud or with a completely different system. So right now, the AI, the computers, everything has to be in line of sight for the car to react. But with 5G, it's not line of sight anymore. It's actually the whole ecosystem talking and communicating to each other. Exactly. The entire city is live. You know everything that has happened 10 streets away from you, 100 streets away from you. And then you can make the decision. You can foresee, you can reroute, you can do other things. That's why I'm more in favor with an AI in the cloud. Further, an AI in the cloud drops the cost of a car significantly. So now you can focus the AI in the cloud and manage the city correctly and effectively. Now, obviously, far away from the city may be a different story. But inside cities, I don't see any reason for the AI to be in a car. So once you leave the city, the AI kicks in, all the sensors, all the lasers, everything, back in the city, they turn off right into 5G. Sean, you think like you're driving the car and you own the car. Forget it. When you leave the city, you'll step into a different car. So between cities, it's a different car. Inside the city, you have a car that is extremely cost-effective. And most of the traffic and traffic issues that you have are inside the cities, not outside the cities. Outside the cities, either you drive it yourself or you get an AI that drives you, but there are less issues and less corner issues associated with driving cars outside cities on highways. So go back to the spectrum, the use. What laws and regulations will be required for that? That's very interesting. So now we have many people or different operating companies who are supposed to compete. But normally it's from the FCC. But now we have local authorities. 
So which car company can operate within my city? Do I govern that? Now you start to see local governments who can dictate who can operate in my city and not. Can I allow Uber or can I allow anybody else to operate in my city? How do they operate? How do they interact with each other? How much they can charge or not? How much do they pay to the city? The city never owns air interfaces until now. Now we're talking about cities owning air interfaces. Well, or at least participating in this big game. This is a new economical reality that we need to deal with, and I'm not sure if there are even laws and regulations associated with What happens when a car that was driven by an AI got into an accident? Well, I don't know. Who pays for it? How do we insure this system? This entire world has this AI-driven, managed, controlled, 5G, it seems to be complex at this time. There are many issues that need to be resolved just to allow, to enable a simple thing, quote unquote, simple thing, self-driven or self-driving car. So it's very interesting. We just interviewed Jonathan Reckatel about smart cities and the dynamics between corporations and local government and technology being implemented. And it sounded from his episode that corporations are going to have so much power. But right now, from what you'd mentioned, it sounds like the local government will actually have this counterbalance of the spectrum. And laws and regulations, they will have to decide what to allow or not, what they get or not, and who can play in their space. And if they do not use that power, then yes, then corporations will win. But we are the people and hopefully we will maintain some control over what's going on. The way to control it is laws and regulations. So if you as a corporation wants to play in my town or in my city or wherever it is, you need to abide to my laws and regulations. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 